Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Hi, Ashley. Hello, Candy. I love our theme this month. I do too. <laughs> you know I do. <laughs> I'm so excited that we are getting ready to record another episode yes. for Monster Madness. So, our topic today revolves around, I tried to think of this month, you know, to hit the different, what do you want to call it, genres, I guess. Sure. So this one's a little more literary. Okay. But hugely popular and well-known still. Mm-hmm. So are you ready for a few Frankenstein fast facts? I am. Lay it on me. <laughs> All right. Here you go. I want you to tell me how many of these you already knew. Okay. Because I tried to find some that might be a little less well-known. Okay. Frankenstein is considered by many to be the first science fiction novel. I did not know that. Mary Shelley actually wrote Frankenstein as part of a competition. I did know that. I figured you would. Many people mistakenly refer to the creature as Frankenstein, Mm -hmm. but Mary purposely did not name the creature. Oh, I didn't know that she purposely didn't. She just calls it the creature. Mm -hmm. An interesting fact about Mary Shelley herself was that after her death, they found her husband Percy's heart in her desk. What? I think I remember. <laughs> I think I do remember that, but it was just super weird. I thought that one would get a reaction. <laughs> and the first time an adaptation of Frankenstein appeared on screen was in a 1910 silent horror film produced by Thomas Edison's film company, which I think was called Edison Studios. Hmm. I wonder if he stole that. <laughs> Sorry. We're coming in hot. (laughs) I'm here for you, Tesla people. I'm here. (laughs) So I found those little fast facts interesting. They are. And in fact, as I was researching this entire episode, there were so many things I came across where I was like, does everybody else know this? Because I don't. I do (laughs) not know these things. You're entering this going, what? How have I gone so long? Right. So I think it's going to be a fun episode. I think it's going to be an interesting episode. And I hope that our listeners are as surprised by some of this as I was. Okay. All right. So let's go ahead and start with our author, Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin. She was born on August 30th, 1797 in London, England. And her parents were very, what's the word? Influential. Influential. They were very intellectual. They were very renowned. Mm -hmm. So her dad was a philosopher and a political writer. He was credited in many sources as being the founder of anarchism. So he was very political. Gotcha. And her mother was a very famous feminist. Yes, Mary. Are you familiar with her? I I am because I heard a episode on the history chicks about her a biography don't ask me to tell you a lot it's been a long time since i saw it but i can include a link but i remember it being really fascinating Hmm, interesting well one of her most notable works was the vindication of the rights of woman yes i remember that which came Mm -hmm. out in 1792 and apparently again both of her parents very strong in their beliefs in their intellect 
in the way that they went about trying to convey their beliefs. Okay. Okay. But unfortunately, Mary never really knew her mother Mm -hmm. because she died after a few days from complications related to the childbirth. Mm -hmm. And so Mary grew up raised by her dad, along with she did have an older half sister named Fanny Imlay. Now, what I found out was the mom, Mary, they both have the same name. It's a little confusing. So right, just to right. distinguish, the mother, Mary, had had a relationship with this soldier and gotten pregnant. And then that fella had left her. And then that's when she married William Godwin. Okay. So this half-sister, Fanny, was raised in their family. Okay. And so William now is left to raise both of the girls. Mm -hmm. And after a few years, he meets a woman named Mary Jane Claremont. And they wed in 1801, which would have been around the time that Mary might have been three or four. Okay. She's still a toddler. But unfortunately, Mary did not get along with stepmom Mary Jane. There's too many Marys, that's why. Right? She said, no, it was my name first. (laughs) You changed. So one of the reasons why they didn't get along was because Mary Jane had two children of her own, Mm. And she clearly favored them from the very beginning. A little bit of Cinderella stepmom stuff going on? Mm -hmm. Okay. And then just to kind of fill out, round out the family, Mary Jane and William did go on to have a son together. So that's who all is involved in this family. So we got two stepkids, half-sister, Mary, and then a half-brother. Yes. All right, got it. So just to give an example of the favoritism, at some point, stepmother decided to send her daughter, Jane, who, by the way, later decides to be called Claire. So same person. Oh, my gosh. Her name was Mary Jane, and she named her daughter Jane. Yes. Guys. And then Jane. Okay, let's just add to this. Daughter Jane changes her name to Claire, Uh and her last name is Claremont. Stop it. (laughs) Guys, there's more names in the world. No, I know. It's so confusing. But let's back that up and say it again. Stepmom has now sent Claire away to school, but did not feel that she had to do the same thing for Mary or Fanny or any, you know, anybody else in the family. Nice. So yes, that's the kind of favoritism that did not go over well with Mary. Another example, the tension between these two got to be so tight. And also it was said in one source, at least, that stepmom was a little jealous of the attention that Mary wanted from her dad. It was Mm. They were this kind is of, Cinderella. It is a little bit, yeah. yes. So Mary ended up being sent to Scotland in 1812 to live for a couple of years with foster parents. Now, it was billed as, we're doing yeah. this for your health. Sure. And to be fair, Mary later wrote that this was an amazing experience. She loved it. Well, that's good. But, but for still. your health, Scotland is kind of wet, so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I hope you get pneumonia. <laughs> this is for your health. This is... <laughs> It'll My be good health. for you. It'll be good for me. I mean you. <laughs> but on the flip side, it all worked out really well for Mary actually staying home yeah. because of who her parents were. Yeah. Her dad actually had started a publishing company, which was supposed to be at the instigation of stepmom. But that brought in a lot of authors. And also, again, he is a renowned figure. He's mm-hmm. he's a political philosopher type gentleman who is bringing in people to his home like Samuel Taylor Coleridge and William Wordsworth. Ooh. So lots of lots of famous people, lots of deep thinking intellectual people mm-hmm. that Mary is being exposed to in her home. She's also being educated by a governess. She has a lot of reading, a lot of books that she's exposed to. She is a an avid reader. Mm-hmm. So this girl is very smart, yes, very literary and has experiences that not many women in that time period would have had. That's right. Supposedly, Mary was very creative as well. A lot of that was in writing, but she also liked to sketch. One of the things that she did 
was she actually published a book through her dad's publishing yeah, company that's nice. when she was only 11 years old. Ooh. So here's a little quote from her. As a child, I scribbled, and my favorite pastime during the hours given me for recreation was to write stories. She put write stories in quotes. So it was a passion of hers all along, but she also got a little distracted when she met a fella who also happened to be a big writer. Yeah, that always happens. <laughs> Take eight- you right off track. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, talk about these two, when they got together, explosive. they got up to some things. It's explosive. They did. Yes, when she was only 16 in 1814, she began a relationship with the poet Percy Bysshe Shelley. Now, we probably all recognize his name. He was a very famous romantic poet. But in this case, he came across Mary because he was a student of Mary's father, William Godwin. Okay. And he he basically admired him. It was kind of a hero worship type yeah. situation. Yeah. Which he ruined when he became involved with Mary because dad oh. did not love that. So when he met Mary, he was five years older. So she's oh, 16. Oh, that's not as old as I thought. He, I thought it was a lot more. Okay. No, he's about 21 at that time. He is married. Oh, that's and the bad has part. one child. And by the time he and Mary ran off together, mm-hmm. his wife, Harriet, was pregnant with their second child no. as well. They could not get married because he was still married. Right. Although they kept using the term eloped together. Mm-hmm. They also took Mary's stepsister, Claire, with them. Okay. And this is around the point when Mary's dad For kind of disowns reason. her. Yeah. He's not He's not approving. Well, I'm sad he disowned her, but... I can see why he was upset about this. Mm-hmm. He really probably had big plans for his daughter, not like the stepmom, but. Right. Well, Mary, Percy, and Claire traveled around Europe for a while, but it was not all fun and games. I'm sure they enjoyed the travel, but there was a lot of financial struggle. And mm-hmm. also there was some tragedy because Mary got pregnant with a child, but she lost it. Mm-hmm. She had a baby girl who was born prematurely, only lived a very short time. And because she was a writer and she recorded so many things in her journals and her notebooks, mm-hmm. we have some some of her personal records. Exactly. So here's a quote from her diary. This was day after day, actually. She would record this same little note. Nurse the baby, read. And that's like what she did each day. Mm -hmm. And then on her 11th day, I awoke in the night to give it suck. It appeared to be sleeping so quietly that I would not awake it. And then the next morning she wrote, find my baby dead. And then after a nightmare, I think it was a night or two later, she wrote, Dream that my little baby came to life again, that it had only been cold and that we rubbed it before the fire and it lived. Awake and find no baby. Oh, that's so sad. It is very sad. And her life has a lot more tragedy than that, which we'll get to soon. She got pregnant again very soon by the time she was 18. Actually, her second child, William, had been born. William was just a baby, and Mary was still just 18 the summer that the Shelleys went to Switzerland with Mary's stepsister, Claire Claremont, Mm -hmm. and also Lord Byron, who was in a relationship with Claire. Oh, gosh. And John Polidori, who was actually both a doctor who was treating Lord Byron, and also he did some writing in that romantic era as well. Mm -hmm. So this is a very literary group. It very much Mm -hmm. is. The bad news was the weather was bad. Mm -hmm. This particular summer, it was uncharacteristically cool, and there was a lot of rain. Okay. And so this group, of course, they're doing a lot of reading and a lot of talking and a lot of debating. And thinking. Exactly. And so that's what they did to entertain themselves quite a bit. But, you know, they had been going through the important issues of the day and, and it started to get a little old. They wanted to do something new. But I should say, let me let me bring this out because this is important. Mary, telling the story of how this came to be, did share that 
this is a specific little point she brought out. One of the topics that they kept discussing was whether or not human corpses could be galvanized mm. or reanimated mm. after death. Do you think it's her dream that caused her to think this about her baby? I don't know. That's an interesting question. Uh-huh. Yeah. But the way the sources read, this was such an interesting kind of political scientific idea yeah. that it seemed like it was just more focused on this. Okay. But Mary described herself again in her writing as a, quote, devout but nearly silent listener. But they, she was saying how she listened to these men as they were debating it. And mm-hmm. she was absorbing all of their speculation and what they were saying about the limits of modern medicine. Mm-hmm. And this then is when just a day or two later, Lord Byron suggests to his friends, quote, we will each write a ghost story. Mm-hmm. It was going to be a little competition, mm-hmm. pass the time, see who could write the best story. Mm-hmm. And they'd been reading some, you know, ghost stories from other places. And that's part of what sparked this. So Mary said, quote, I busied myself to think of a story, one which would speak to the mysterious fears of our nature and awaken thrilling horror. But she was having trouble coming up with a topic. So every day they'd be like, well, do you have an idea yet? And she'd have to say no. And then one night she had, some people called it a nightmare. Some people called it a vision. But either way, her quote was, I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out and then on the working of some powerful engine show signs of life. So she turned that idea into a story, and then her husband, she won the contest. Well, I would assume so. And her husband encouraged her to turn that story into a book. It took about two years. I, yeah, that's a mm-hmm. that's a long that's a long story. Absolutely, and very detailed. Yes, in fact, one of the points we'll come back to later is how different the adaptations have become over the yeah. years. Mm-hmm. So I don't think I had an idea of the true the story, original. right? And it, I was a little surprised as I was reading this to find out some of the pieces that happen, some of the events that take place. But the novel came out with the title. Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. Mm-hmm. You knew that. Yes. I'm going to pause. What else do you know about well, the original? Um, I just remembered the original title. I don't think I know much more. Does, does it start with the, the shipwreck, the original story? I believe it does. Okay. So I've seen adaptations that use the shipwreck okay. as the framing device. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, you're ahead of me. Okay. Well, basically, it's the story of a young natural philosophy student who, and this is the way it's described in one of my sources, so I'm quoting from them, burning with crazed ambition brings a body to life, but rejects his horrifying creature in fear and disgust. That's kind of just a brief summary. Interestingly, John Palladori, that physician slash writer, he ended up writing the Vampire, which was published, took a few years for him to get that out too, but that was published in 1819, and several sources that I came across named that as the very first vampire story oh. and give him credit for kicking off the vampire genre. Before Bram Stoker did it? That's what they said. Interesting. But I, now at our break, I'm going to look that up. Okay. Okay. But yes, what a party and what a competition. Yes. Who would have thought that it would lead to <laughs> all of these history-changing events mm-hmm. in, in our literary world? But moving back to Mary. Yes. We said it took her about two years to finish the book. Yes. By this point, Mary and Percy were married oh, because okay. his first wife, Harriet, had died of suicide. Oh, gosh. And it And that was one of the reasons now that they could marry. And by this time, she's pregnant with her fourth child. Okay. 
Now, just as a side note, several sources commented on what a hard life she had. She lost several children. In fact, she ended up getting pregnant five times. I think there were four childbirths. Only one of her children lived to adulthood. The others died before they were like three or four. Oh, gosh. Such a hard life. Yeah. She adored her husband, but he seemed to believe in free love. So there were lots of relationships. There was that caused some jealousy. Mm -hmm. They they struggled with money, I think, Mm -hmm. the entire time. Poets don't make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So it was not an easy life. Mm -hmm. Now, the one child, by the way, who did live to adulthood was named after her husband. It was Percy. It was his first name, Florence. And he was born in 1819. Okay. Okay. So now that we've kind of filled that in. Okay. Backing up just a tiny bit. Frankensteiner, the modern Prometheus was published in 1818. And it came out listing the author as anonymous. Ah. Now, I thought this was interesting. The reason why they said it was anonymous was because at the time, women were not given a lot of credits And so they thought it might do better if a woman's name was not attached to it. Also, several sources speculated that she was afraid they might take her children away from her if people realized that a woman had written such a graphic horror story. I did not think about that. I thought that was very telling about that time period and some of the attitudes. And even today, it's uh, encouraged if you write something fantasy or not... Typically, women's fair, I don't know what you want to call it, that you go by your initials instead of saying that you're, it's a female first name. It'll be more likely, if you use your initials, it's more likely to be picked up. Mm-hmm. That's what S.E. Hinton did with, when she wrote The Outsiders. Okay. Because she didn't want people to know it was Susan Eloise yeah. writing about all these male figures right. who were in a kind of basically a gang. Right. Yes. Well, that's sad that you have to do that and that mm-hmm. there's a bias against mm-hmm. female writers, but I thought it was interesting. Another interesting little tidbit about this is that many people assumed that it was Percy Shelley who had written it because he did write the introduction. And even today, some people try to say that maybe she was not the writer and that it was her husband, Percy. One of the reasons is because, you again, she kept a lot of notes and a lot of journals and there was some editing done by him. Mm -hmm. I'd say, what in the F. Scott Fitzgerald? (laughs) 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 That's so funny. But they've actually gone back and they have found these documents and Mm -hmm. they have traced it back and they have, all the scholars seem to agree. Well, I shouldn't say all. Most of the scholars seem to agree that Percy just helped her edit it. That he might have had impact on 4,000 of the 72,000 words that were in it. Sure. But it was her work. Right, right. So by the way, it was about four more years, four to five more years before it actually got out that it was... Mary, who was the author, she okay. waited until there was a new printing of it. Okay. And when that version came out. That it was already successful. Then yes. she could say it was Then her. her name was on it. Gotcha. Yes. So I know I've already shared the basic premise, but I have a little summary here that's a tiny bit more detailed. Ashley, do you mind reading that for us? I can do that. In Shelley's tale, a scientist named Victor Frankenstein, a passionate student of chemistry at university, decides to create a being with material he's gathered from the, quote, dissecting room and slaughterhouse, end quote which is pretty gross. (laughs) The gentle, intellectually gifted creature is enormous and physically hideous. Cruelly rejected by its creator, it wanders, seeking companionship and acceptance. The creature can't bear his isolation, so he begs Frankenstein to conjure him a female mate. Frankenstein complies, but immediately regrets his action, so winds up destroying the female in front 
of his original creature. The creature becomes increasingly brutal as he responds to the rejection and cruelty he experiences and continues to feel isolated from the rest of mankind, murdering first Frankenstein's little brother, then his best friend, and finally his bride. Ooh, so there is the premise of Frankenstein. And honestly, I did not remember all of the murder of Victor's loved ones. Did you yes. remember that? Well, I, I have not read the original story, but I have seen several adaptations. And our theater did a version of this in a radio mm, play okay. a few years ago. And it was not the brother, but I think he had a little sister. I think. Oh. And then in the adaptation, it was the little sister. And then it was the caretaker that got framed for killing the little sister. And the bride is... All the adaptations I have seen, on stage at least, do contain him killing the the bride. And mm-hmm. I think I remember seeing one at a theater where they did have a little boy. So I bet that was the brother. Right. Yeah. But what the radio show brought out was all of the rejection from the... Yes. from Frankenstein himself, the creator, the scientist. And... I, I had sympathy. I mean, mm-hmm. of course, I didn't have sympathy for him murdering all those people. But in the part where he was rejected by his creator, it was very, had religious overtones. And yes. you very much sympathized with the creature. That is so interesting that you say that because that was Mary Shelley's intent. In mm-hmm. fact, I've got some pieces that we're going to talk about related exactly to what you said. She was very openly trying to show us that it was the rejection and the way he was treated. That made him become that yes. way. That was not who he was. Mm -hmm. And just to go ahead and say this now, I think in a lot of the adaptations, Frankenstein became this mute creature that Mm -hmm. just kind of lurched around. Mm -hmm. But But he was not that way. No. In her version, he could read. He was intellectual. Very intellectual. He was very well spoken. I think he even had the heart of one of Frankenstein's scientist professor friends. Oh, I didn't recall that. Or the brain or some some part Mm -hmm. of him was, and that's why he was so intelligent is because he had the brain of so that's what they were claiming anyways he had that brain but yeah he was very he learned to speak he was very eloquent and then only when he was rejected did he turn on this Mm -hmm. and especially after the the bride the creature's future bride was killed by frankenstein which was so cruel it was like the thing he wanted desperately he just wanted a companion yes Mm -hmm. and and to not feel like an outcast like he was isolated from the entire world yeah well we'll come back to that part in just a second but just to to continue on with this little piece in my notes. Remember, Mary was concerned about people thinking that it was too graphic and mm-hmm. too too much of a horror story for mm-hmm. a woman to have written it according to what other people might mm-hmm. perceive, right? Mm-hmm. Well, here's a quote from the book that, that basically shows how she described the creature coming to life. It was already one in the morning. The rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out when, by the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. Mm -hmm. So her description had his yellow skin, he was supposed to have had watery eyes, a shriveled complexion, and straight black lips. She was very descriptive. Mm -hmm. This is the type of creature, the type of monster, if you will, Mm -hmm. that she was describing in this book, which was pretty shocking and scandalous for this time. This was very new for these people. Yeah. Now, the subtitle, this goes back to what you were saying. The modern Prometheus. Mm -hmm. It's a reference to a figure of ancient Greek mythology who created humans from unliving clay and then gifted them with fire stolen from the gods, which was supposed to represent 
the dangers of overreaching because one of her statements, one of her themes was this scientist yeah. who was overreaching and yeah. in some ways playing, playing God. God. Yep. Yep. So that was one of her themes. Now you mentioned the religious overtones. Mm-hmm. The other reference there is to the biblical situation of God and Adam. Yes. In fact, one of the quotes comes from Paradise Lost, and she used this in her epigraph to Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. It says, quote, Did I request thee, maker, from my clay to mold me man? So pulled from Paradise Lost, a biblical reference that is pointing to this tragedy that he didn't ask to be created. Mm -hmm. And then when he is, he is rejected and treated this way that Mm -hmm. causes him to become the monster. Right. Another quote from the creature that speaks to this a little bit. Remember that I am thy creature. I ought to be thy Adam, but I am rather the fallen angel whom thou drivest from joy for no misdeed. Everywhere I see bliss from which I alone am irrevocably excluded. I was benevolent and good. Misery made me a fiend. Make me happy and I shall again be virtuous. Mm. Yeah, that doesn't just speak to it a little bit. That no. says it straight yeah, it out. Does. It does. Mm-hmm. Well, the book was a huge success. It's a very intelligent book. It really is. It's kind of been, like you said, it's kind of been watered down in the universal mm-hmm. adaptation and all of this. And it's a very intelligent, well thought out book that's supposed to make you think. I could not agree with you more. Mm-hmm. That was something that stood out to me so much. This is a girl who is writing this at the age of 18 to 20. Mm-hmm. And she is pulling from what is happening in current events. Mm-hmm. She is pulling from biblical and literary references. Shows you how smart people were back then. I mean, yes, she was so well educated, so thoughtful, so broad in her perspectives. Mm-hmm. It was incredibly impressive to me. Mm-hmm. Well, so again, it was published in 1818, hugely successful, became a play not long after, and which of course, again, was a huge hit, first in Britain and then abroad. The first theatrical production of Frankenstein was staged in London in 1823. So not very long after. Not very was... long after. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sadly, by that time, Mary was already a widow. That's right. Didn't he drown? He did. Yeah. Do you remember anything else about that? No, just that he drowned. Didn't she have a dream that he was going to? Am I just pulling that out of cobwebs? You know, it may have happened. I didn't see that in my research, but that doesn't mean it's not true. She did have a lot of dreams. She did. And she seemed to put credence in them. You know, before we talk about what happened to Percy, maybe this would be a good time for us to take a break. Sounds good to me. Do you love tea? Do you love entertainment? Do you love listening to stories from your two new BFFs? Then consider joining the club over at buymeacoffee.com. For $5 per month, you can be a part of the 1939 Club, otherwise known as the Golden Year of Cinema. When Gone with the Wind, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Stagecoach of Mice and Men, Wuthering Heights, Hound of the Baskervilles, The Little Princess, Babes in Arms, Goodbye Mr. Chips, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and of course, The Wizard of Oz were released. Perks include a 5% discount on new merchandise, a shout out for new members, an opportunity to be listed as a supporter in show notes, and exclusive access to bonus content. However, if you're feeling doubly generous, you can join the 1993 Club, otherwise known as the greatest year of cinema. This is the year that Schindler's List, The Sandlot, The Fugitive, Rudy, Robin Hood, Men in Tights, Sleepless in Seattle, The Nightmare Before Christmas, Mrs. Doubtfire, Grumpy Old Men, and of course, Jurassic Park were released. 
Additional perks in this club include a 10% discount on Scandalwater merchandise, the opportunity to record a shout-out of your own, and the chance to vote in our guaranteed content poll, along with the warm and sunny feeling that you're supporting your besties. If clubbing isn't your thing, there's a one-time gift option, too. Either way, those who support Scandalwater report fewer bad hair days, more green lights and traffic, and a grander sense of purpose and wonder at least once per day. Scandalwater, we do the research, so you don't have to. Well, during the break, I remembered to look up the publication date of Bram Stoker's uh-huh. Dracula. Uh-huh. It was 1897. Okay. So the other guy John, was before him, right? He preceded him by more than 70 years. Whoa. Almost 80. I mean, Breaking news. <laughs> this is breaking news, people. From the, from the 1800s that we're figuring out today. Yes. There you go. It never happened before. You are welcome. Yes. We do the research so you don't have to. <laughs> That should be a tagline. It should be. <laughs> All yes. right. Okay, so back to Mary. Actually, this is a sad part. Oh. Okay, Mary was only 24, and Percy was only 29 in 1822 oh, when she lost him. It was very sad. He had been out sailing with a friend off the coast of Italy, and they were caught in a squall on mm. July 8th that caused their boat to be... Capsized. Yes, capsized. They actually used the phrase overtaken, but... Ugh. Yeah, it went down. So their friends, of course, were waiting. They were they were trying to find them, but it took several days before, actually it was 10 days before their bodies washed ashore Gosh. on July 18th. And one of the identifying objects was that they found an open copy of Keats' 1820 volume of poems on Percy's body. Mm. Now, it's interesting because one source said that it was due to the laws that, that Italy had these quarantine laws that required that bodies that washed ashore had to be burned and that is why they burned the bodies but other sources said it was kind of a product of this romantic era and the friends who were there at mm-hmm. Percy's I guess funeral pyre is yeah. how you might describe it you know he Percy and the friend he was with they felt like maybe it was just the fact that these fellows felt like this is something that you do in this romantic era you know really? you, either way they did basically have a funeral pyre and this is where one of the fellows there was Edward John Trelawney and this started that legend supposedly and there were so many I don't know the legend I'm about to tell you there are different versions of this but here's the one I landed on as it was burning he reached in and pulled out Percy's heart no oh that she kept his heart okay so so he took it from out of the fire some sources said it was unburned yeah that you know he got to it before it was burned some said it was slightly singed I would assume so but there was also, again, this is very legendary. The idea here was that his heart was too pure to burn. Oh, Other people speculated there was like calcification or I, I have no idea. Okay. But supposedly, yeah. somehow or other, he's the one who did save the heart from the fire. And that is how Mary ends up with it. What'd she keep it in? She wrapped it in a piece of silk and one of his poems was also in there, or at least an excerpt uh-huh. from one of his poems was also kind of wrapped in there as well. Uh-huh. And supposedly it was almost a year after her death that they found it either in or on her desk. Do we think this is true? It was in all the sources. I kept finding, I kept looking it up. Really? <laughs> Mary Shelley, Percy, Percy's heart. And it kept coming Everywhere. up time and time again. What? 
in the I world. Know. Crazy, isn't it? Well, now I will say one source. Guys, you don't you don't know what to trust, right? <laughs> yeah. One source said maybe it's not as odd as we think because okay. during this time period, people Didn't Queen had Victoria started, keep something of Albert's. Well, they say people had such reverence for the dead, yeah, that they would do things like keep locks of hair, take pictures with the corpse. Yep, that was Victorian. Mm-hmm. I would say keep a lock of hair, but his actual heart—it's not even a pretty organ. It's not like the Valentine heart. It's a, it would be very meaningful. I guess well mary girl okay so <laughs> moving on here is something that i found fascinating as well mm-hmm. we talked about all of the literary genius that came out of this one little competition mm-hmm. here's a little disturbing fact about that of that little group who was part of the competition polidori the fellow who wrote the vampire book uh-huh he died of suicide in 1821. We that just talked early. about Percy yeah. drowned during this storm in 1822. Yeah. Lord Byron had had a daughter with Claire. They broke but, up. They broke up, and it was not pretty. So he took their daughter, Allegra, away from Claire and sent her to a convent to be educated, where she died in 1822 at age five. Lord Byron died in 1824 after contracting a fever. And by the way, I took to make sure you guys understand this, Claire was actually pregnant with that daughter when they were together during this competition. Oh, okay. So she actually was kind of part of this group as well, okay. which is why I included her. Okay. And then, as I said, Lord Byron died in 1824 after contracting a fever so of that entire group only mary and claire lived to be past 50 years old that is wild Mm -hmm. and again because of all the loss that she suffered i should note that mary suffered a lot of grief and depression over her Uh, lifetime yeah yeah it was it was not a happy life although she obviously had high moments but a lot of that grief and loss served her in her writing and in fact some people think it was an inspiration for the theme of one of her other very notable books which was The Last Man. Here's oh. where she broke ground again. Do you know The no, Last Man? No, I don't know anything about this, but I was it was reminding me of Nora Ephron where she said everything is copy, so Mary mm-hmm. is taking all of her pain and turning it into something. Yeah, yeah. Well, published in 1826 when she was 28 years old, The Last Man is considered to be the first work of modern apocalyptic fiction. What? Mary! I know! <laughs> I'm telling you, I was researching this woman going how do i not know about her i don't know so the story follows a group of people as they struggle to survive in a plague infected world it centers around a male protagonist as he struggles to keep his family safe but inevitably he is left as the last Last man man alive Yes. So after Percy's death, kind of moving back into our timeline, Mary is now left to raise her young son, Percy, alone. And of course, she's a woman. This is mm-hmm. not an easy thing to, sure. to support a son. Yeah. So basically, she had two sources of income, one of which was her writing. That's, and according yeah. to one source, quote, she published historical novels that delve deeply into past political conflicts, such as land wars in 14th century Italy and conflicts of succession in the English court of Henry VII. She penned intimate family portraits including Matilda Faulkner in Lodore which explored the education of daughters and troubled relationships with fathers she wrote extensive journals and travel logs as she journeyed across Europe with her only surviving child Percy Florence Shelley man so she was writing and she was writing extensively and actually some of the sources say that you know she was doing well for for a woman of this time she was pretty respected yeah mm-hmm. I wonder if her extended works are available probably I'm sure they're out there somewhere interesting i like to read them 
The other thing she was doing to make money, actually, she wasn't doing it. It was another source of income, was her father-in-law, Sir Timothy Shelley, was giving her a small allowance. Okay. Now, I'm assuming, this is this is 100% candy speculation. I never saw this in a single source. But I'm going to guess that because she was a woman mm-hmm. and her husband had passed away, the father-in-law is controlling her money. Like, oh, I, you I, think? I suspect any money Percy would have had, either, either Percy had nothing and and father-in-law was just being kind to her maybe because of the grandson right Mm -hmm. or if percy had any money maybe it was being controlled by by his dad Mm -hmm. yes i have no idea but I do know she was getting a small allowance from her father-in-law, which comes into play here because one of the things that she wanted to do after her husband passed was she wanted to promote his work. She wanted to, to try to preserve his literary mm-hmm. legacy. Mm-hmm. So she almost immediately started working on trying to edit a volume of his poems for posthumous publication. And she did get one out within just a few years. In fact, it came out in 1824, but it made Sir Timothy very angry. Why? I don't know. Although I did see one article that said, quote, that the father had, here's where the quote starts, always disapproved of his son's bohemian lifestyle. So I don't know if it had anything to do with that or if dad just didn't think it was appropriate. Did he think the poems would incite other people to live a bohemian lifestyle? Or he just didn't approve of the fact that his son was, you know, wrote poetry and was part of this romantic era. I don't know. But she ended up having to promise that she would not publish any more of Percy's works in Sir Timothy's lifetime oh, in order for him to continue to the give allowance. her the allowance, gosh. which was not huge. It was yeah. a small allowance. It did increase a little bit over the years. Mm-hmm. And one, I guess, slightly positive note was that Sir Timothy, after something like 15 years, finally broke down and did allow her to publish another volume. It might have been more than one, to mm-hmm. be honest, I don't recall. But she did get to publish more of Percy's works Yeah, because the dad probably wasn't that old if Percy died when he was 29. Mm-hmm. Dad's, dad's not an old man. Right. So moving back into Mary's writing career, in 1831, she actually published another edition of Frankenstein. Okay. And this is the one that most people think of as the Frankenstein. Really? Like, yes. It's the most commonly accepted and the one that people really honestly recall when they think of this work. Uh-huh. But it's a little controversial because it was heavily edited. There are some big changes. The reason why people think that she did this is because there had been a lot of criticism. Some people were calling it, the first version, too radical and vulgar. Mm. And so they feel like, the scholars feel like, Mary was basically trying to appease some of the critics mm-hmm. with the edits that were made. A watered down version, would you say? Definitely some changes. Uh-huh. Here here we go. I'll give you a little overview. The 1818 edition first chapter was expanded and split into two different chapters. The 1831 version changed some of the origin story of the bride, okay. um, Frankenstein's bride, Elizabeth. Okay. The 1831 edition introduces the concept of galvanism, which was very scientific. It's that idea of how to reanimate bodies. Okay. okay. And the 1831 edition included more of 
Victor's motivations and more of his thoughts about creating life. So it tried to flesh out Victor a little bit more. What people felt was that she did in some ways water it down a little bit, Uh soften it a little bit, Uh that her tone or her message was a little softer in the new version. Also, she added this preface where she tried to talk about how her her work came to life. She told the story of the competition, which is honestly how we know a lot of what happened is from her telling it. I would like to see a version of the story where it's about the competition. Mm-hmm. I think that is so fascinating. I do too. I do too. But it was interesting. This was just one editorial comment from one of the authors who said with her being a woman, it was almost like she felt like she had to apologize a little bit mm-hmm. for the story being so strong mm-hmm. and so graphic, so filled with horror. And even even the fact that she came up with it, like this person, this is just one person's speculation, but this particular author said it's almost as though she was putting out this idea of, oh, it came to me in a dream mm. to almost excuse it. Really? Instead of, Not, no, I these up. were big issues. Yeah. I had this fascinating idea uh-huh. and I wrote it. No, it was a dream. I see. Mm-hmm. So take that for what it's worth. But that new edition came out. It continues to be incredibly popular. Now, throughout the rest of her life, Mary is focused on raising Percy. She is writing. She traveled quite a bit. Money was always a little bit of an object until later in her life when I believe she did inherit some of the Shelley money when different members of the family passed away or her son did and and that helped her out. But she died of brain cancer. Some sources called it a a brain tumor Uh on February 1st, 1851 at age 53 in London, England. Wow. It was almost... 100 years, it might have been slightly over before her novel Matilda was finally released. It was in the 1950s, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. But she is remembered today, of course, for many things, Frankenstein being number one number one so i thought i would talk about mary for just a few minutes about her significance because this was one of the things that really hit me as i was preparing for this episode from the poetry foundation website they pointed out that she was often overshadowed by the people around her Mm -hmm. her parents were so well known yes her husband was so famous and so flamboyant i guess you might say she associated with lord byron and all these other people that were so well known and and so this website said, you know what? She was amazing she in was. her own right. They said, quote, yet this forefamed woman was also a skilled editor and critic, an influential travel writer, a literary historian, a devoted mother, and a dabbler in verse, as well as in the new genre of the short story. Mm. Because the short story was pretty new at that time. Mm-hmm. Somebody else, one of the other authors pointed out, how significant it was that Mary was a mother because Mm -hmm. they said most of the female writers of that time, first of all, there weren't that many who Mm -hmm. were applauded, Mm -hmm. but the ones that were tended to be the ones who were spinsters. They tended They were single and chosen that life, chosen the literary life over a family life. And in some ways, the audience or the public looked at that as being more acceptable. They were writing poems. Mm -hmm. They were, the audience or the public viewed that as more appropriate Mm -hmm. for these women who were spinsters Mm -hmm. and, you know, all that. Whereas here is a mother, you have that connotation of a nurturer Mm -hmm. who is writing something that's so edgy for that time. Shocking for that time. And again, her biggest legacy, Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. So let's talk now specifically about how 
she broke ground with Frankenstein. Just a few more pieces. We've already said it is considered to be the first science fiction novel, but across the different sources, I have seen so many other ways that they have brought out the significance of this work. One source said, quote, it is a defining work of the Romantic Age and continues to fascinate readers over 200 years later. Yeah. A BBC article said this, quote, Frankenstein is simultaneously the first science fiction novel, a gothic horror, a tragic romance, and a parable, all sewn into one towering body. I like that they included parable. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. It's two central tragedies, one of overreaching and the dangers of playing God, the other of parental abandonment and societal rejection mm. are as relevant today mm -hmm. as ever. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, it's significant because we've already said numerous times how many adaptations we've had from it, how many different works and films were sparked by it, including the 1910 Thomas Edison silent film that we've already mentioned, but also... You know, we've had Boris Karloff's version in 1931, up to spoofs like Young Frankenstein right. with yes. Gene Wilder. Frankenstein. Absolutely. Christopher Frayling is a gentleman who wrote a book called Frankenstein, The First 200 Years. Yeah. And in that, he says that Frankenstein set the tone for so many future dramatizations. He points out, this is his quote, they condensed the story into basic archetypes, adding many of the most memorable elements audiences would recognize today, including the comical lab assistant, mm -hmm. the line, it lives, mm -hmm. and a bad-brained monster who doesn't speak. So basically started all of these little mm -hmm. um, tropes. Yes, thank tropes. you. Did you know that with the Universal Pictures Frankenstein, the monster, you are, okay, so should we put on a full-fledged play of it? You can never have a green monster because they copyrighted, while you cannot, as we've done with our research on copyright, you cannot copyright the story of Frankenstein, mm -hmm. but you can trademark the looks. Oh. So you are not allowed to have the green, the bolts, anything. You can't make it look like that. That is their trademark. Interesting. Mm -hmm. That is fascinating. Well, to follow up on that idea of the archetypes, the BBC article I referenced a minute ago adds, quote, are there any characters more powerfully cemented in the popular imagination? The two archetypes Mary Shelley brought to life, the creature and the overambitious or mad scientist, mm -hmm. lurched and ranted their way off the page and onto stage and screen, electrifying theater and filmgoers as two of the linchpins, not just of the horror genre, but of cinema itself. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was very insightful. And one last little quote here to, to bring this to a close. One source says, the book Frankenstein is much more than pop fiction. The story explores philosophical themes mm -hmm. and challenges romantic ideals about the beauty and goodness of nature. That's a lot Yes, it is. For a simple, single book to do yes, that was is. sparked because of a competition. Yep. I was impressed, so impressed as I was doing all this work. And so this leads us into our armchair. Okay. Armchair psychologist. I could ask you so many questions. Yeah. But here's the Am one. Am I smart enough to answer any of them? <laughs> yes, I don't you are. know. Yes, you are. Here's, here's the one that came to my mind. I was intrigued by this idea of labeling this a science fiction piece mm -hmm. versus a horror story. Because mm -hmm. I've always thought about Frankenstein as, as a monster. Right, it's a horror. It's a monster or mm -hmm. a horror story. So I have a quote that I'm going to read, and then I'm going to ask you a question. All right? Okay. 
The early 19th century teetered on the brink of the modern age, and although the term science existed, a scientist didn't. Interesting. Great change brings fear, as Fiona Sampson, author of a new biography of Mary Shelley, tells BBC Culture. That's the source of this quote. With modernity... With the sense that humans are what there is comes a sense of anxiety about what humans can do, and particularly an anxiety about science and technology. Frankenstein fused these contemporary concerns about the possibilities of science with fiction for the very first time, with electrifying results. Far from an outrageous fantasy, the novel imagined what could happen if people, and in particular, overreaching or unhinged scientists, went too far. So, my question to you, do you agree that it's the science fiction aspect that made Frankenstein most powerful or most impactful to its audiences, or do you think it was something else? Yes. Now let me think about why. Okay, if it was just horror, it would be all about scaring you, and then that thrill would be done with. Hmm. It's more simple. Oh, I'm scared. I got that adrenaline rush of being scared. Mm-hmm. We've had we've had lots of films that have been scary, but have they also caused you to think deeply? Mm-hmm. And so if we're going with the science fiction part of this, I think something that makes some of these people stand out, say Mary Shelley with her Frankenstein, or even we're doing a show about Poe right now, which is things that he's saying could apply to today. There's some people that seem to tap into, they tap into the commonness of man and what we think about and the themes that are eternal. So she was talking about, like we said, it was a parable. And I think it's important to acknowledge that she is not, I don't think she was not comparing the scientist to God. I think she was saying, here's what happened when man plays God. And because we are fallible, this is what can happen. If Mm -hmm. we try to create it's not our business to create. Of mm-hmm. course, we do it through children, but she means from piecemeal pieces. Mm-hmm. Does that make any kind of sense? I'm trying to yes, put it together. Yes, I think I followed you. Okay, great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, I think I followed you. It, it's a hard question that I posed. Yeah. I think my response would be that I agree that the science fiction aspect takes it to a new level of complexity. Mm-hmm. Because if it were just a horror film, it's really easy. You know it's man against monster and yeah. you want the man to win and you want the monster to lose. Right. In this case, it's not so clear no, cut. No, because of the science fiction aspect, we now have an ethical dilemma. Right. It's what we said earlier. He we didn't now- ask to be created. And he certainly didn't ask to be treated that way. Yes. It was actually his response to the mistreatment mm-hmm. that led to him doing such awful things. I although think, we can't forgive him for no, that. Of course, no, we're not no. excusing that. I think that. it's a reactional abuse is what they would call it because he was abused so horribly. He reacted in abuse mm-hmm. in, in abuse himself. But yeah, we can't forgive. You can't murder people. Yeah. I no, don't care how mad you are. <laughs> but, but again, it's what you said. Instead of just mindlessly going for a thrill. Right. Now we're thinking mm-hmm. now we are having to really tease this out and, and it makes it relevant. They, they said that before, but because of that, it still applies today. The the issues, the ideas, the yeah, questions are yeah. still relevant. Right. In the 90s, they started doing the cloning and talking about cloning and should we do this or should we not? Well, no, we should not. Or cloning pets. 
some people have had their pets cloned. Well, and again, some people would argue that we should clone. That's the thing yeah. that makes it so right. Everything is so controversial. It just makes you. I'm glad it makes think you about think. It. We need mm-hmm. to think. We, we need to think more. We do. We absolutely do. I guess another comment that I'll make it does not relate to the question. It's just kind of a side note. Is I thought I was starting this just focusing on Frankenstein. Yeah. But I've come away with a respect for the author and her intellect and her creation of not just this work, but basically a whole new genre. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I I wonder what she would think if she could look back and go, this is what you have wrought. Like, look what you created. And not just science fiction. Mm -hmm. She was also the first post-apocalyptic novel. I mean, she really started two. That's impressive. (sighs) Makes me wonder if she was a time traveler. (laughs) I mean, I'm just wondering. We'll end, I think, there with a big shout out, a big cheers to Miss Mary Shelley. Yes. Cheers to you. Cheers. If you love what we do, please rate and review our show. Or you can become a supporter by making a donation through buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod. Whether a single gift or a recurring monthly donation, it would go a long way towards supporting our work and allowing us to keep the tea brewing. At our website, www.scandalwaterpodcast.com, you can submit questions or your own story ideas, access our sources and show notes, see the merch we offer for sale, and more. You can join the Scandalwater community through our Scandalwater Podcast Facebook page or follow us on Instagram or TikTok at Scandalwater Podcast. This episode was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown, that's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. A special thank you to Josh Martin, who wrote, composed, and performed the Scandalwater theme and other music. Matt C. Adams, who created the artwork, and Joshua Reith, who designed our website and provides ongoing technical support. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandalwater are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.